0: Now, I am Elika, uh,
1: and I'm the director of the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities. Um, you're not going to hear too much more from me, um, just to say that that TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, is, um, has organised today's event um, and uh, very much is involved in welcoming you as is the Bodleian. Um, As many of you know, um, TORCH is over in the Radcliffe Humanities Building, and we are a hub for humanities discussions. Um, This particular event, however, is tied to our TORCH Humanities and Identities Series, which brings together researchers, creative thinkers, and wider communities interested in all forms of identity, definitions of the self Uh, from the past, historically, and into the future as we define ourselves into the 21st century. Um, So we're actually really, really delighted that we were able to combine this discussion about volcanoes and the Caribbean together with the Humanities and Identities series. Um, I'm also just going to quickly say a few words about our chair today. Emma Bong Amoran, um, who is going to introduce the speakers to you. She is Career Development Fellow in Women in the Humanities, and she's interested in and works on the history of women, gender, and race across the 19th and 20th centuries, um, and she concentrates on the global African diaspora in a very, very persuasive and compelling way. So it's with great pleasure that I hand over now to Emma Bong Amorin.
2: Welcome. <laughs> thank you. Um, so again, good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to kind of second Elika's welcome to you all um, on this really interesting panel that I'm going to be chairing. I'd like to thank Torch for um, organising and hosting this event, and for kind of the Bodleian as well for the really interesting exhibition. I'd also like to thank the other seminars and groups that I've helped to, helped to host this event, so the Race and Resistance Programme at TORCH, the Fiction and Human Rights Network at TORCH, the Caribbean Seminar, which is based um, at Pembroke College as well. So I'm going to be um, introducing our four speakers, who are going to be speaking roughly for around five to ten minutes on their kind of thoughts about the um, exhibition in relationship to Caribbean literature, and um, but also their own research. Um, and so our first speaker will be Richard Scholar. Richard Scholar is Professor of French and Comparative Literature here at Oxford and a fellow of Oriel College. His main interests lie in early modern French literature and thought, and he works in other related fields, including post-colonial Francophone Caribbean Studies and is published widely um, and for the purposes of our work today in 2015 and um, Richard co-edited the book Caribbean Globalisations, 1492 to the Present Day. Our second speaker is Vanessa Lee who is a DPhil student here at Oxford who works on Francophone Caribbean women playwrights. Our third speaker, Annie Castro, is a Mellon postdoctoral fellow based at Torch who works on Caribbean literature. And our final um, speaker will be Jemima Payne, who is a master student, is that right? Yes, um, here as well. So please join me in giving a warm welcome to our first speaker, Richard Scholar.
0: So thank you very much indeed for the invitation, uh, the chance to share um, some thoughts and enthusiasms with you on the basis of the exhibition, um, which I enjoyed very much, um, uh, I also enjoyed visiting. Uh, uh, I had an adult visit all on my own, um, but having had a first visit with my children, including my five-year-old son, who was really wanted to tell you all how much he particularly liked the um, the, the fireproof <laughs> costume worn by the <laughs> worn by the scientists. Um, uh, who, um, uh, as they deal with, uh, uh, approach lava and would like to borrow that, if that's okay. So perhaps you could <laughs> o- organise that, that, thanks very much. <laughs> um, and I think that um, part of his enthusiasm uh, was mine as well, which was the way in which the exhibition connects various things that are so often um, not left... Uh, uh, s- s- left separate um, uh, in universities and in, in the study of such things as volcanoes i mean the the connect the connection between the sciences and the arts um vulca- volcanoes are you know are and have re- been a problem for scientific inv- and remain a problem for scientific investigation and it's really interesting to see that put alongside the human stories of which volcanoes are always uh, w- also a part um And also the, um, if uh, the history and geography of those things. So, um, uh, as was just said, I'm uh, as well as someone who works on um, the Caribbean, um, an early modern um, European uh, uh, student. And uh, so, it was very interesting for me to see, um, uh, to to learn actually uh, that Vesuvius hadn 't just erupted in the a d but also in the 17th century and then became a major topic um, of investigation for the, the for the new science um, uh, uh, across across europe and to see that connected um, by the theme of vo- vo- volcanoes with the subject of the subject of today 's um, panel discussion, the Caribbean, I thought was really really fruitful um, um, and uh, if you like, offers a sort of the possibility for a whole series of, of connections uh, and of, cam- of different forms of comparative study. Um, once we turn to the Caribbean, of course, um, the you know a number of um, uh, volcanoes active in the region. Uh, the ones closest to my centres of interest happen to be on the on the on the French. Francophone Caribbean islands of Martinique and Guadeloupe. Uh, The Pelé I was thinking in particular, um, um, on on Martinique, and which has become really, which is a uh, volcano that has haunted um, and and in its own way enriched um, uh, Martinican writing uh, for for well over a century. Um, You know, the the cataclysmic event being the um, the eruption of the volcano in 1902, which uh, killed something like 30,000 people and destroyed in one stroke um, the, the capital of Martinique at the time, Saint-Pierre. Um, so the moment you come to think about the, um, events like that, you're um, thinking about uh, not just ecological Disaster, but also human disaster, and um, the the very different you know the very different ways in which that that event can play into human history. Um, and um, really, I think of what I'm going to do uh, uh, in what remains of the time uh, in what re- remains of my time to speak is, in a sense, be introducing or um, uh, setting up various things which the other speakers will talk about in, in, more, in more detail. Um, um, but but uh, I'll just mention a few examples of the way in which uh, the, the volcanic eruptions of the Caribbean have, had, uh, have, have haunted and enriched um, uh, the, the culture, particularly the literary culture, of the Caribbean. Um, I mean, I think one way in which they've haunted um, the, 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 the literature and thought of this region has been in appearing uh, alongside a whole series of other uh, enormous, um, enormously difficult, enormously painful um, events that this region is, is, is dealing with, still living with. Um, uh, and in a sense, that means that volcanoes become a kind of metaphor as well. Or often become a metaphor for other for, the, for, for other traumas that the the, the region has suffered. Um, uh, uh, the book was recently was very kindly uh, mentioned by um, by the by, by Im- Imabong, um, who was um, mentioning Caribbean globalisations, uh, and one of the uh, one of the one of the essays in this book is a study of the notion of apocalypse in the Caribbean um, and the way in which Caribbean writing so often seems to be confronting the end times um, and um, uh, the author of that essay uh, Martin Munro, puts ecological crisis at the heart of, of one of the uh, uh, one of the sort of, if you like major elements of, 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 of that trauma. Um, obviously, volcanoes are one example of that. Um, slavery. Um, so often the, the, the story of... Uh, or the way in which the stories of slavery are told is uh, in relation to volcan- volcanic eruption. Uh, it, it's, it's a sort of a common a commonplace of Caribbean writing to say that slavery is a volcanic eruption that we 're still uh, the consequences of which we 're still living with, um, and then what goes along also with, uh, with with slavery the the continuing problems of social division that that that, um, that there are a problem not just in the Caribbean but in the Caribbean too, and of crime um, so um, so to return so just a couple of um, yeah, in the in the minute or two I have remaining, I'll just mention three really rich uh, examples of mm-hmm. how um, how the, the volcanoes can appear in 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 the midst of this context, in as as an important um, uh, presence in Caribbean writing. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll pick um, very briefly mention three examples, and then and and then other speakers will no doubt will either return to them or or, or bring new ones uh, along too. So. That nineteen oh two explosion um, uh, eruption of the of the Pelé in Martinique is memorably captured in the at the heart of the nineteen ninety two novel Texaco by the Martinican novelist Patrick chamoiseau um, uh, a, a novel which tells the story of the development and growth of the capital city Fort de France that, that developed because the the Saint Pierre was obliterated in 1902, uh, and Texaco uh, is, in fact, uh, of the title is in fact a slum area of of the new capital that's that's had to be built um, after the obliteration of Saint Pierre, and um, so so for Chamoisau, um in that novel what is the what is the eruption of the pulley well it's a kind of it's a it's a cataclysm it's a cataclysm that did, that in a historical sense has denied martinicans their capital and if you like taken away from them or blown a blown a hole in their history um and so and, and that raises all sorts of questions then of, of, of identity, um, as Elica was referring to, that's one of the major things that we're, we're thinking about in Torch at the moment. Um, so, so it's sort of figured as a gap, which uh, the, 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 narr- the narrator's f- um, father uh, witnessed the, the eruption in 1902 and won't talk about it to her. And so it's sort of that, that, that event is something that won't ever be talked about but remains... Uh, uh, sorry, that, 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 that shapes, uh, nonetheless shapes subsequent Martinican history. Um, things aren't always quite so, uh, the, the volcano isn't always quite used quite so darkly in the in, in the writing of this region. I'm thinking of Daniel Maxima's, um autobiography Tout c'est l'enfance, um, in which he thinks about um, a, uh, he he thinks about an. Um, this is now ni- not 1902, but 1802. He thinks about a moment of resistance to Napoleon that took place in a village in the village of Matuba, high in the hills of the other of the volcanoes that I mentioned earlier, the Soufrière. And for for um, so so it's the story of uh, essentially a a Martinican uh, freedom fighter who refuses to and, and commits suicide rather than um, uh, submit to Napoleon's forces and therefore becomes, uh, he and Matupa and, and, and the volcano become a figure in this, re- in this uh, narrative for l'obscure um, refuge du feu sauvage de la liberté. So freedom itself has kind of uh, it has become the lava buried under the under the volcano, ready to erupt at any moment. And uh, keeping with that, um, if you like, appropriated kind of sense of what the volcano might be for Caribbean literature, I'll end by going back a generation and, and, uh, to the, the Martinican poet Émile Césaire, who uh, others will talk about and talk about other writers in the same family later. Um, for Césaire... You know the the volcano is both part of the problem and the solution. So so yes, um, it does have that effect that Chamoiso talks about. It does blow a hole in in, in Martinique in history and create a problem for identity. But it's also part of the solution in that, poet uh, in the in the volcano and the eruption of volcano becomes a kind of figure for poetic energy, for the explosion of of, of energy that is. Uh, the eruption that is um, that is that is that is poetry for Césaire. So that's a very nice um, or a very sort of powerful, if you like, appropriation of you might, what you might say is a very common um, way of thinking about poetry as inspiration, but here seen through a homegrown um, Martinican conceptualization, the, the conceptualization of this enormous energy which will not be suppressed and will come. Um, and, and, and create a kind of terrible beauty so um, I've opened up a few things I hope I'll pass on, thanks very much
3: Actually, Annie Castro, I'm not. Uh, But uh, I'm going to begin by talking about Cesare, So we thought that was a nice segue. Uh, Yeah. So, um, just begin. The two thoughts that kept repeating in my head as I looked through the Weston Library Volcano exhibit were deceivingly simple. Wow, volcanoes are crazy. Wow, the Earth is crazy. What I really meant was that volcanoes expose the geological disruptions and those disruptions' possible dangers to us humans, which are constantly lurking under the seemingly solid ground on which we stand. And indeed, the figure of the volcano often signifies many different kinds of catastrophic disruptions and hidden dynamisms and literatures of the Caribbean. In the French Caribbean, where there are more ge- volcanic geological forms, that's like in the Lesser Antilles, And more specifically, through the work of Aimé Césaire, the volcano has come to represent the manifestation of long-developing social injustices, ending in violent revolution. In his Discourse on Colonialism, Césaire uses the volcano to promote the harnessing of creative anger that he considers both cosmic and distinctive to the Caribbean. He writes, The volcano is not destructive except in an indirect way. It is a cosmic anger, in other words, a creative anger. Yes, creative. We are far removed from that romantic ideal beneath the calm sea. These are angry, exasperated lands, lands that spit and spew, that vomit forth life. That is what we must live up to. We must draw upon the creativity of this plot of land. It is a kind of summons to us from history and from nature. Beyond Cesaire, there's a well-known, notably masculinist legacy of revolution envisioned through violent acts of nature, including the hurricane, earthquake, and volcano. And it can be exhilarating to imagine the, the, the island, this land, fighting back after centuries of being conquered and brutalized by the processes of colonization that include plantation slavery, deforestation, mining, and the slow poisoning of air and water through pollution. But of course, in all of these uh, violent acts of nature, It is still that same landscape and those most vulnerable creatures on the land, namely animals and impoverished humans already suffering from colonialism's environmental impact, who disproportionately suffer in natural disasters. Of course, salient recent examples are the earthquake in Haiti and Hurricane Katrina in the U.S. In the realm of Caribbean literature, we see this ecological double injury depicted through the violated bodies of feminine characters. This is my argument. <laughs> the editors of Caribbean Literature and the Environment explain that, quote, an assumed one to one relationship between woman and land, an island, was one of the originary tropes of colonial Caribbean discourse. And centuries later, few, few of these ideological constructions have disappeared. So, with these correlations in mind, I'm actually going to briefly consider a scene in Jamaican author Erna Broadbury's novel, Mayal, through the lens of post colonial feminist eco criticism. So, Mayal opens with a moment of spiritual, corporeal, and ecological crisis through the violated body of a young woman. Ella O'Grady, a lighter skinned Jamaican woman, has had her spirit stolen from her by her new husband, the white American Selwyn Langley. Ella has just returned to Jamaica to be healed of her trauma induced illness by Mass Cyrus through the practice of Mayal. Mayal is an African derived religious tradition that incorporates the use of herbal remedies to heal spiritual maladies such as this one. Ella, described repeatedly as a bruised stone, represents the colonized Caribbean environment in this moment. She had considered Elwyn her architect. He had opened a passage in her and drained substances from her, but refused to replenish her or give her the chance to create for herself. These are her thoughts. Selwyn's extractions from Ella sound markedly similar to destructive eff- eff- effects of the mining industry in Jamaica, the nation's second largest GDP earner after tourism. His treachery has left Ella barren, although she only realizes this upon seeing the racist minstrel show he creates by misappropriating her precious island memories. Upon watching the insultedly exoticized drama, Ella notes that the supposed Jamaica, and this is the long quote, that the supposed Jamaica, in which Selwyn set his play, had to be the most fruitful place in the whole world, in one which which respected no seasons, there were breadfruits at the same time as there were star apples, as there were mangoes. Selwyn knew nothing about Easter as star apple time, midsummer for mangoes, and the end of summer, the breadfruit season. It was unnatural. End quote. The husband's coon show is like the tourism industry, the island's number one GDP earner and the leading cause of the de- to the degradation of clean water supplies and coral reefs in Jamaica. Both the tourism industry and Selwyn's play market Jamaica as an exaggeratedly fertile a paradise for white, American, and European outsiders to consume and then discard without any consideration for sustainability and the well-being of their inhabitants. A really good text for this would be Jamaica Kincaid's Small Place. That's actually about Antigua, but um, she really rips apart the tourism industry. In a really, It's also just well-written. <laughs> um, as a result of this racist colonial violation, Ella develops a hysterical pregnancy. Swelling with what the Mayal practitioner Mass Cyrus calls the stinkiest, dirtiest ball to come out of a body since creation. Ella is the volcano, a material form about to burst with that energy Césaire might describe as cosmic anger. And yet, this energy is most dangerous to Ella herself, not to those who have hurt her. As her ill body shakes, she infects the already bruised landscape around her, turning the trees into, quote, a colony of stone bruise, desperate to spit and spew and vomit forth not life in this case, but the stinking decay of material trauma. Like the real-life volcanoes through which Cesaire fantasizes revolution, the result of, Era, of Ella's spirit-saving myal procedure is indeed violent, releasing a lightning storm that is part hurricane, part volcanic eruption, and part earthquake the ecological event becomes fatal as it unleashes floods, high winds, and earthly tremors, which bring about the deaths of hundreds of animals and several humans. And in the text, they're kind of categorized and listed, almost it looks like a census data. The release of Ellis Payne, her second bodily violation, produces the death of vulnerable creatures, but also the creative energy Césaire romanticizes in his work. Through this procedure, the community members are invigorated to fight the spiritual violence of colonialism. In the end of Erna Brodber's novel, the reader is left with a sense of triumph for the saved spirit of Ella and the hope that that this procedure grants her fellow Jamaicans. The spiritual elders of the town and and the young woman herself, they gather together and have this discussion where they recognize the depth of emotional, physical, and spiritual trauma that colonialism has dealt them, and they are newly prepared to quote, fight those spirit thieves. And yet, Brodber does not permit us I contend, to simply forget the gender-specific physical and emotional violation that catalyzes these events. I urge us to maintain a focus on the double injury of Ella and Anita, who is another twice-violated young woman in the novel that I did not have time to discuss today. Um, So Anita, in both situations also, I didn't really go into this, but both of their violations, their spirit theory, um, are very sexualized and eroticized. So there's also a sense of sexual violation in this, which is another trope of the equation between woman as land, right, um, and colonization, the brutalization. So I'm just going to leave us with an open question, which is there some way to envision and even promote that creative anger, cesare attributes to the volcanic Caribbean landscape without relying on repeated metaphorical and physical violence towards already vulnerable bodies in society?
4: Right, so um, I'm going to talk about uh, volcanoes in relation to my own research on French Caribbean playwrights. Um, The writers I work on are from Martinique and Guadeloupe, which are two islands um, in the Caribbean that are French overseas territories. So they're not um, part of the Francophone Caribbean, which also includes Haiti. These are sort of overseas French uh, possessions, which really... um, has an impact on what types of literature are written in both places. Anyway, I thought I'd specify that. Um, So, And also, both Martinique and Guadeloupe are volcanic islands, which obviously has a huge impact on the literature produced from both places... So uh, what struck me the most in the exhibition was the fact that most of the exhibits that were dedicated to Caribbean volcanoes were in fact uh, cultural products. So there were a few uh, poems that were inspired by the um, eruptions um, in St. Vincent and Montserrat as well, I think. And um, it just, to me, showed the importance of the geography and landscape to literary production, not just in the Caribbean, but all over, all over the world. Uh, but since we're talking about the Caribbean, I'll focus on that. One particular item that drew my attention uh, was a book uh, by an American author called E. Stratemeyer, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, um, which is entitled <coughs> The Young Volcano Explorers and was inspired by the 1902 Pelé eruption uh, that Professor Scholar discussed earlier. And it just, the fact that an American author wrote about, was inspired by this eruption, shows the magnitude this event had um, in the early 20th century. Um, It was uh, a devastating eruption. It destroyed a whole town, which was also not just the capital of Martinique, but considered, um, in French it's called Le Petit Paris des Antilles, so the little Paris of the Caribbean, and... um, and it was known throughout the Caribbean region and the Americas as a sort of cultural um hub. Um, it even had a state-of-the-art theatre, which was um the same as one found in um metropolitan France at the time, um, which was completely destroyed. But they've recently made a digital reproduction of it, which is really exciting for me, especially since I work in theatre. But so, yeah, so it was a complete, so it was a destruction of this cultural and economic hub. And um it had it really had a huge impact on the Martinican psyche and imaginary, and it also—I well, I might add this—it also coined the term uh, for a type of volcano. So all the volcanoes that resembled the um, the Pulley mountain from thenceforward was, were called Puleyan volcano types. I think that's—I'm not sure what they are in English, but in French they're called Puleyan volcanoes. So it was also a major event in um, the development of um, volcanology, I suppose. Um, so, the you know so this major event in Caribbean history inspired many of the local writers, uh, both in terms of literature and in terms of developing literary theory and philosophy. And most of the Martinican writers that I study and have read. Have all written at some point about this uh, eruption of 1902? It's it seems uh, almost you know a rite of passage they have to write about this uh, essential um, aspect of Caribbean history, and indeed it's a it's a key factor in understanding the way Martinican um, you know the imaginary works and functions. So one author I'd like to focus on is called Ina Césaire, and she's the daughter of Emma, not Emma, Emma Césaire, who um, was discussed earlier. And um, she's an ethnologist uh, originally, but she wrote several plays, and uh, a few plays on the eruption of the Pelé Mountain. And most of these plays are historical, and are quite didactic, so they're aimed at a young audience and aimed at uh, sensitising this audience to their history. Um, But they could also be aimed at an audience that is not familiar with that particular history. And they depict characters who go about their everyday lives in the midst of this eruption that is about to, uh, to happen, or characters who are escaping the area, because um, what I didn't mention was that before the actual eruption, there was a constant, like for the days leading up to it, there was a constant cloud of ash that was falling on Saint-Pierre. So the locals were aware that something was, you know, something was going to happen. But um, the religious and political authorities reassured them, saying it wasn't going to happen. Um, I think there was going to be an election, a really like important election happening uh, at that time, so they wanted everybody to stay put, basically, which was a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> at the end of the day, but anyway, so those different plays also show characters from different walks of life and from all strata of society, and it really shows Cezel's desire to show that this is a an event that affected all Martinicans. You know, the um, you know the white upper classes, the black form like the formerly. Um, Slave uh, black population so everybody was affected Um, but one of her plays that is particularly interesting is uh, looks at two aspects of the Caribbean of the Martinican imaginary that are linked to particular traumatic entities so the first one is the volcano this duplicitous geographical um, entity and the other is the Diables which is found in other Caribbean um, cultures and is a a figure of a sort of female demonic figure who seduces men and draws them into the forest or into the mountain and leads them to certain death. And this is basically a symbol of uh, you know, suspicions um, regarding certain types of alterna- alternate femininity or sort of the, the, fi- the male fear of the, the female seductress, for example. So in this play, written in 2005, which I don't think was performed, which is the same, because there was a whole soundtrack um, developed for it as well, there, Césaire looks at how the oral tradition from 1902 onwards incorporated this sort of trauma linked to the volcano. And she looks at this myth of the volcano and the myth of the diablesse and attempts to deconstruct so- certain social stereotypes by an- analysing how these stereotypes are Uh, constructed and perpetuated so that's the literary part of uh, volcanic inspiration shall we say in the Caribbean Um, volcanoes as has been discussed earlier has also inspired many thinkers and um, in conceiving certain thought processes and theories and I'd like to discuss two of these uh, in relation to volcanoes uh, one is uh, Edouard Glissant's theory of relation. So, Edouard Glissant, a Martinican author um, whom I assume a few may, of you may know and have read of, uh, have, have, have read about. And he, his theory of relation basically is one that conceives of identity in relation. So, instead of conceiving of identity as something that is more inward-looking and introspective, this is a sort of identity building that is. Face stuck like, towards, moves towards the other, and therefore, through discovering the other, we discover ourselves. And um, there we go. And this is inspired in a way by Caribbean geography. Um, the Caribbean being made up of lots of different islands that are connected, obviously by bodies of water, but also by shared cultures and languages and histories. And in terms of volcan- uh, the, like the volcanic link here. Um, Martinique and Guadeloupe specifically are part of a volcanic, underwater volcanic chain. So uh, the islands are actually volcanoes that sort of came up from this chain and are actually all linked underneath, like below, underneath the the ocean surface. So uh, that that adds to this idea of relation being not just, you know, conceptual or cultural or historical, but actually physical. Um, So, you know, breaking down this idea of identity as insular and separate. The other idea I'd like to finish on is... Patrick uh, chamoiseaus uh, idea of anthropological magma so he uses the image of magma um, you know volcanic magma's free-flowing sort of unpredictable to describe the development of Caribbean identity Caribbean identity that is made up of lots of different um, identities and cultural influences and so thus the use of anthropological to talk about this magma and he just uses it to show how, like magma, this sort of mixed identity is made up of lots of different anthropological influences and is also free-flowing and should be considered something a bit more um, less rigid than traditional uh, categories relating to identity. Uh, so those are the thoughts about literature and theory from Martinique that came up when I saw the exhibition. There you go. Yes. Thanks.
5: Thank you very much for coming, and thank you to my fellow panellists as well. It's always good to hear other people's reflections and also get some more names from the the Caribbean literary community. Um, So my name is Jemima Payne, and I study English and French here. And um, I've moved on to look more at um, literature from the African diaspora in France and the US. And it was more last year that, that I looked at Caribbean literature, and specifically literature from Haiti, And I also took a couple of trips to Haiti in 2014 and 2016 um, where I was helping to reconstruct an orphanage that was brought down in the earthquake in 2010. And the videos that are shown, I don't know if you've seen the exhibition, um, really resonated with me because they reminded me a lot of the testimonies that were shared by some of the people I met in Haiti. And I think it just showed me that You know, what I'd seen of the earthquake as being something quite um, devastating, but really you just hear about masses and figures of people who are affected by it. You don't hear the individual stories. And for me, it really showed that you can't discount the individuality of experience when it comes to these kind of phenomena. So what I particularly liked about the Volcanoes exhibition is how it presents a variety of lenses through which natural phenomena Uh, like volcanoes, can be seen. So as you move through the exhibition, you are presented with historical narratives, scientific data, drawings, personal accounts, and artistic impressions, amongst many other forms, which each consider volcanoes through a different lens, emphasising different aspects of them as natural phenomena, as experiences and uh, objects, in a way. I also like the emphasis in the exhibition on personal narrative with one of the notice boards reading, the voices of those whose lives are affected are not always heard. Now literature I feel privileges the subjective, that is the perspective of the subject or multiple subjects within a single narrative and so it presents an array of different impressions of and responses to the same event or object. Now, I'll return to this idea in a moment, but firstly, I want to sketch out some of the ways in which the environment is treated in the Haitian literary tradition. And one particularly important aspect of this, which is the genre of marvellous realism. Mm -hmm. Now, it really has its roots in the voodoo religion, which is very prevalent still in Haitian culture today. Traces of it can be found in the drawings, the sculpture and writing of the country. Voodoo developed out of the African animism of countries such as Benin in West Africa, um, countries from which its citizens were deported uh, to work as slaves on the plantations in Haiti. So this animism really uh, teaches that uh, there's this uh, natural connection between things that you see and the supernatural things that you don't see, and it kind of permeates um, their daily lives in a way that Uh, they would see other religions as not quite doing, and certainly in Western tradition where we seem to separate the natural from the supernatural. So there's a quote from jacques Stephen Alexie who wrote Les Arbes Musiciens, The Musician Trees, in 1957, which I think really expresses this well. He says, as for the Loire, and the Loire, um, that's the name for the uh, voodoo gods, they were gods who were closely involved with humans and their concerns temporal gods who could intervene at any moment and who in this country caused the rain to fall and the sun to shine. So you see there's that um, connection, that link between their daily lives and uh, the actions and responses of these supernatural beings. And there's this continuity that perhaps we don't find so much in the Western tradition. Another novel uh, called Adriana dans tous mes rêves Adriana, In All My Dreams, by René de uh, from 1988, tells the story of a French woman in the Haitian city of Jacmel who disappears on the night of her wedding. Her death seems to cause the decline of Jacmel, which kind of links in with what Annie was saying about uh, that trope of of woman and land. And there is speculation over how she died, because she just disappears, and where her body is to be found. Years later, she returns as a zombie, and gives the narrator of the book a detailed first-hand account of her zombification. Now, to a Western reader, this storyline might seem fantastical, but in fact, the narrative displays realism in its naturalistic descriptions and historical detail. For example, when Adriana uh, returns, she actually walks into the lecture theatre, a bit like this, where um, her... This man who's who's narrating, who's infatuated with her, is giving a lecture on, on rumours of her having become zombified. And there she walks in in the back, but it's really told... I mean, you don't see it coming because everything else is told so realistically. And it's quite compelling and quite different as a genre if you've never come across it before. So this is um, a quote from the book. This is the uh, narrator speaking. He says, The natural kinship between the real and the marvellous had been disturbed by the disappearance of Adriana Siloui. This natural kinship that he thinks just exists between the real and the marvellous, it's quite interesting that it's actually disturbed by Adriana's disappearance, and it's almost like her returning as a zombie and this zombification is sort of a resolution and sort of uh, brings back the equilibrium that is meant to exist there between the real and the marvellous. Now, I'd say that literature mimesis in literature, so the imitation of life, actually lends itself well to this genre of marvellous realism. In literature we always see descriptive techniques which take things beyond what they are in real life, whatever that might be. And so certain Haitian writers will exploit this in their descriptions in order to imbue the natural with the supernatural. So this is another quote from um, Des Adriana d'Antouméreuve. This is Adriana talking about how she's been zombified. She said, I had been incorporated into the very substance of the earth, wild and murky, and into the seed of the soil in Jackmel, tightly closed and encased in shadows. I stood now at the boundary between the animal, vegetable and mineral worlds. In the French original, the word incorpore is used, so it's really a sense of her body becoming one, with the Earth, And again, that kind of detailed description of what is happening draws you in and takes you away from this being something fantastical and difficult to imagine, and really brings you to something that seems very realistic. So now I want to return briefly, before closing, to this idea of personal narrative, and this time take an example from a contemporary writer, the Haitian-American author Edwidge Danticat. Uh, In 2010, shortly after the earthquake, uh, she published a collection of essays entitled Create Dangerously, in which she gives uh, a platform, really, for uh, lots of different voices from uh, the Haitian community and the Haitian diaspora, not only about the earthquake, but quite specifically about responses to the earthquake. In this next quote, she gives a personal account of how she heard news of the earthquake. She (coughs) says the media called to ask for my reaction to the earthquake and its aftermath. I was numb, like everybody else, I wanted to say, tallying my losses, remembering each moment of every day, someone I I had not heard from, someone I had not been able to reach. But once we got past the personal angle, shedding my reluctance to speak for the collective, this is what I felt I had to say. I said, Haitians like to tell each other that Haiti is... Teglis, slippery ground. Even under the best of circumstances, the country can be stable one moment and crumbling the next. So as a public figure in the West, Dantica is called upon to speak on behalf of her country. And actually throughout her work, she resists this. She doesn't want to speak for the, for the collective. She doesn't think that to do so really helps sensitise people to what is happening in Haiti. She remains a- aware of the importance in all of her books about hearing individual stories and quite often she'll involve different voices. So her collection of stories, Crick Crack, in 1991, uh, each chapter is told through a different voice and you actually see that all of these people have lives that are intermingled, that each has a separate voice and distinct account of their version of events. And The Dewbreaker also, which is about Um, a former prison guard uh, who comes to terms with uh, his legacy of torture, again will tell the story from his point of view and from his victim's point of view. And it's quite clever how she makes these kind of mesh together and, and lets you see things from very different perspectives so that you really get a 360 view on events that occur in her novels. Even in Create Dangerously, which is her most autobiographical work, she tells the story of friends, family and strangers allowing their version of events to be considered by the reader. So to return to this exhibition, I admire its exploration of personal narrative, whether through written word or visual art, historical account or artistic impression. In its exploration of a natural phenomenon that affects thousands of people throughout multiple generations, this exhibition remains aware of the importance of individual stories, even though these stories take time to curate translate or transport. Thank you.